As the COVID-19 crisis continues to evolve, humankind continues to adapt. When normal life came to a screeching halt, we were immediately forced to adjust to a socially distanced world. For many of us, the struggle remains real, but for healthcare workers, learning to adapt is a matter of life and death. When the virus made a doctor's visit riskier than ever before, healthcare providers found new ways to connect with patients. And as infections fluctuate, brave contact tracers track human transmission. Throughout the pandemic, heroes in medicine and public health have saved lives through Zoom and over the phone, proving even in the darkest times, people find a way to take care of each other. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about the meteoric rise of telehealth in the wake of COVID-19. Forced to shake off reservations about seeing patients virtually, many physicians are incorporating telemedicine into their practice and creating a strikingly different future of medicine. Our second story is about the contact tracers turning a centuries-old public health service into an effective tool to curb the coronavirus pandemic. Using a hybrid of old and new technologies, contact tracers have long been supplying a key ingredient in the tool's success, empathy. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, how the doctors adapting to telemedicine are creating new paths to the future of healthcare. The pandemic has boosted the use of telemedicine, telehealth services, and virtual doctor visits. Telehealth medical consults are becoming the new normal. With our hospitals soon to be overwhelmed, doctors are embracing telemedicine. Now technology is bridging the gap in healthcare. Virtual visits and consultations is what they're pushing for. And what they've done with telehealth is incredible. A service where you can obtain consultation and treatment via mobile devices or your computer. You can now FaceTime your doctor. The demand for telemedicine continues to grow rapidly. And in the age of the coronavirus pandemic, it has suddenly become more important than ever. Before the pandemic, telehealth usage was at the fringe of care consumption, making up about $3 billion of health care spending in 2019. Nowadays, analysts predict virtual visits could account for up to 20% of what Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial insurers spend on outpatient office and home health visits. Out of necessity, many physicians have incorporated telemedicine into their practices. Forced to shake off any reservations, they began seeing their patients virtually. The industry accounts for a serious lack of regulation and data, and some physicians and patients have been troubled by the risks of mistakes, misdiagnoses, as well as privacy breaches. Every physician inverse consulted acknowledged that telemedicine is appropriate for some, but not all medical uses. However, as long as the COVID-19 pandemic surges on, telehealth isn't likely to slow down. In 2019, just 11% of Americans reported using telehealth. Now it's 46% of Americans. Whether telemedicine will truly streamline healthcare remains to be seen, but here to talk about where it stands as of late is Inverse's Ali Patillo. Hey, Ali, how's it going? It's good. Hey, Tanya. As much as the telehealth industry is becoming a lot more common these days, I hadn't realized just how much growth it's seen as of late. Previous to the pandemic, though, how common was this practice generally? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, generally speaking, prior to COVID-19 pandemic, telehealth was kind of at the fringes of healthcare consumption. In 2019, just 11% of Americans reported using telehealth. Now that number is 46%. So while there were a lot of doctors who were a little bit nervous or skeptical of this technology, they were kind of forced to shake off those concerns and those reservations. And it's been kind of cemented in a lot of physicians' daily practice out of necessity. So some analysts now say that health providers are seeing about 50 to 175 times the number of patients virtually than they did pre-pandemic. And it's even more staggering when you think about healthcare dollars. So before the pandemic, telehealth usage made up about $3 billion of healthcare spending in 2019. And now analysts are predicting that virtual visits could account for up to $250 billion, or about 20% of what Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial insurers are spending on patient visits. Those are crazy numbers. You just mentioned um, how doctors had some initial reservations because before they were forced, as you said, to embrace these virtual visits, a lot of them were reluctant and skeptical. What were the main reasons as to why though? Yeah, so there's a variety, but based on the conversations I had with about a dozen different doctors, some early in their career in residency, others who were you know, 30 years into their practice, They felt like telehealth challenged kind of the core tenets of their medical education, you know, those in-depth in-person visits with the physical exam. And they worried that there were kind of subtle signals that patients give off during a real-life, real-time patient visit that would be missed. You know, some doctors even said that telehealth and especially that kind of telehealth that's conducted via the popular direct-to-consumer platforms like Hims and Roman, they called that kind of telehealth malpractice. One doctor said there are extremely rare exceptions where a patient should be given a prescription without a physical exam. That's the exception, not the rule. But like I mentioned, you know, all of those worries kind of had to be pushed to the side because patients needed to be seen in the pandemic and in a pandemic that made a doctor's visit more risky than ever before. One of the key benefits here is the time efficiency and the convenience of um, telehealth. What kind of impact has going virtual had on both patients and clinicians' time? Yeah. So telehealth can enable certain people um, who can't take a morning off work for a doctor's visit, who don't have time you know, to trek across the city to see a specialist, sit in the waiting room, then see the doctor. And telehealth can also connect patients to certain doctors that they never would have been able to see. So this is a really crucial point in that a lot of the United States um, is considered what what people call healthcare deserts. Um, And those are places where primary care doctors, surgeons and specialists can be hard to find. Some estimates put about the the number of medically underserved areas in the United States to be about 80% of the country. Even by 2032, experts are predicting a really severe kind of primary care shortage. All this to say, if you live in, you know, rural Wyoming or rural Mississippi and you need to see a specialist, telehealth can help you arrange that visit much faster. You don't have to fly to a different city or drive to a different city for that in-person appointment and you never have to leave your house. Yeah, there's obviously a lot to work out, but it seems like we are um, we're just gaining traction in that direction in the same way 
you know, as we're working from home, we're rethinking the concept of offices. Is there a sense that this will be part of the future of medicine post pandemic? Yeah. I mean, every single doctor I spoke to, they said this, that they said the telehealth is not going away and it's unlikely to slow down. Some even said that this is one of the very few positives to come out of the pandemic. But they do stress, again, telehealth, it might be ideal to be optional after patients and providers connect in person if it's medically appropriate for for their concerns. You know, the whole kind of either it's good or bad, that kind of oversimplification, I don't think fits here. You know, saying that everything is malpractice with telehealth or I have to see all patients in person isn't isn't really accurate. And I also think saying, you know, we don't need to see anyone in person. Everything can be done online is also incorrect. I think a combined approach, which is what a lot of the doctors told me is probably what's going to win in the end. But I think we are confident in saying that this is a huge tipping point for telehealth. People are interested in using it. They're seeing benefits and it isn't likely to go away. Very good. Ali Patillo, thank you so much. Thanks, Tanya. As technology continues to streamline contact tracing, scientists at George Washington University estimate that the United States still needs humans, as many as 369,000 of them, to do the job. Up next, inside the lives of contact tracers and the emotional experience on the other side of the phone. I, I often think about and talk about what people like you are doing. Because as you probably know, contact tracing is not the most successful endeavor in many, many parts of the country. Uh, And you're making it as an example of how to do it right. It's extraordinarily important to get our arms around this outbreak by doing uh, successful contact tracing. And you guys are the example of how that gets done. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, speaking to a contact tracing team in July 2020 during a meeting at the University of California, San Francisco. Contact tracing, the process of determining who has recently been in contact with a person infected with a virus, is considered to be one of the best methods for controlling the spread of the novel coronavirus. Contact tracers in San Francisco, like any team, are tasked with calling as many COVID-19 patients and their contacts as possible. They delve into the lives of those who have had personal brushes with COVID-19. Receiving these calls can be difficult. Making them, no walk in the park either. So much so that contact tracing programs from California to Texas are actively preparing to combat something called compassion fatigue, a symptom of burnout that can leave contact tracers feeling drained. It's mostly documented amongst healthcare workers like intensive care unit doctors or psychologists. The ability to empathize is a huge part of being a good contact tracer, but it's also part of the job that puts tracers at risk emotionally. And many contact tracers aren't public health officials by training, but people from all walks of life looking to make a difference. Dr. Anthony Fauci has more. And you know, it's amazing. I don't think people realize they think that Contact tracers are people who are kind of born contact tracers. They don't know that what you guys are doing, you have staff from the city attorney's office, the assessor's office, the public defender's office, everybody just chipping in and and actually doing uh, the deeds that I think are going to turn around this outbreak. Intended to be a line of defense between us and the apocalyptic world of true lockdowns, contact tracing isn't going to end the pandemic. 
However, it's a critical measure that can help reopen states along with decreasing case counts and increasing test capacity. Joining the show now for a closer look at the contact tracers on the front lines is Inverse's Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma, how's it going? I'm good. How are you, Tanya? Good. So previously we talked about the general concept of contact tracing. Now we're learning more about the people behind it. And you realize how empathy becomes an essential part of the job. Can you give us a sense of the sensitive situations involved in the day-to-day life of one of these workers? Yeah, I think that contact tracing kind of gets this bad rap of being sort of, you know, this faceless group of people who will call you at home and ask you if you're self-isolating. And that's, it's really not that at all. A lot of contact tracers, their ultimate goal is to contact as many people who test positive for the coronavirus as possible and their contacts and talk to them about self-isolating so they can cut off the train of transmission. So ultimately that is a goal, but a lot of it is more about making sure that people can self-isolate in a sort of a safe and effective way. And that's not always the case. So I spoke to a couple of uh, contact tracers at the university of Texas Austin who find that they're often talking to people who feel really emotionally distressed or, you know, they've tested positive for a disease that can feel really scary and new, or they don't feel that they have the resources to self-isolate. They are not sure if they can take time off or they're not sure if they'll even have, you know, food available at home. And so one contact tracer, Addison Allen, who is actually a college student at the University of Texas, but is now a contact tracing lead uh, describes speaking to this woman who, you know, had just tested positive for coronavirus and she was self-isolating at home. And, you know, that morning, the same morning that um, Addison called, she had, you know, her kid had knocked on the door and, you know, wanted to see their mom. And, you know, she had to say no and sort of stay, stay away. And when Addison called her as part of the contact tracing program, the woman was really distraught. And that's really difficult, obviously, for the woman who's self-isolating, but it's difficult for contact tracers, too, to sort of be in the middle of that for people's lives and then, you know, offer them advice and understanding and empathy and try to really get into their position to help them make the best choices for themselves and for everyone else around them. As you're right, many contact tracers aren't even public health officials by training. So who tends to take this on? Is there any type of person that tends to gravitate towards this? Well, I think that depending on where you are, you're going to get different answers. So one sort of demographic, so at the University of San Francisco's contact tracing program, you'll see some people who are doing it for course credit. So these are like PhD students or public health students, or you'll see people who, you know, once were city workers or tax assessors or Strangely, they have a lot of librarians um, on their team who take on this role. Um, Then you have a decent amount of college students who have stepped up to do this job. So at the University of Texas Austin, um, some contact tracers there uh, told me that their demographic does tend to skew a little bit younger. But you also sort of see these examples of college students who have really sort of stepped up to fill the void. So I think that uh, in Florida, there were at least 400 students working at the state contact tracing programs. Um, And then when the Ohio Department of Health, this was back in March, uh, sent out sort of a call for contact tracing volunteers, they got about 1,200 applications at first, and more than 900 of them came from college students. So I think that you'll see lots of different people doing the contact tracing job. 
But so depending on where you are, you're going to see different people who have to take on that responsibility. And importantly, they're not necessarily public health people. They're, you know, they had other jobs and other lives and other ambitions. And like everyone else, they've sort of had to readjust thanks to coronavirus. So getting back to the emotional toll this job can take, you write about how something called compassion fatigue then comes into play. Can you talk a little bit about that and how these contact tracing programs are preparing for this? Yeah, so compassion fatigue, you can think of that as as a type of sort of secondary traumatic stress. So it's most often seen in people who are like intensive care unit doctors or psychologists. And um, I thought that one 2018 paper on compassion fatigue in nurses puts it really well. So they become sort of predisposed to compassion fatigue through constant exposure to suffering, being in a high stress environment all the time. And this phrase called the continuous giving of self. And I think that's sort of the key for contact tracers is that they are sort of trying to empathize with the people on the phone and get into their shoes so they can help them make the right choices. But they do that over and over and over and over again. So these contact tracing programs, some of them, like the one at the University of Texas, has a specific compassion fatigue training um, that they put everybody through. But it's still, you know, a couple of days. It's not like people have spent their whole lives preparing for this kind of thing. And at the University of San Francisco, they also have sort of psychologists come in and talk to people. But when I spoke to Steve Waters, who runs Contrace, which is sort of a larger contact tracing contracting company that's only just sprung up, he said that this is actually a big problem and that not all places are really preparing contact tracers for the emotional side of the job. And another thing about these programs, you know, they say that they're not just training people to do this for the short term. So post-pandemic, what kind of opportunities are there for, for someone with these skills? Yeah, I mean, we always need contact tracers. This isn't new to coronavirus. Once people sort of learn to learn these skills, do they stay in the public health workforce? And I think that a lot of contact tracing leads, like some of the people at the University of San Francisco, hope that they do. I mean, one way that you could sort of see this being applied is you have people who are really learning to be advocates for people's health care. Um, they know how to speak to people about scary things like a, a respiratory disease that you know we've never faced before. And they know how to talk to people about getting care and about quarantining and all of that. So. You would hope that maybe there's space for these people in the world of public health after this is over, but they have to make it there first. Very good. Listeners can head to inverse.com for more. Thanks so much, Emma. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. Head to Inverse.com to read more about the latest on how the healthcare industry is tackling COVID-19. You can click on the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for the Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.